The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Let me start by doing what I always tell my students not to do, um, and, and explain what's up. Um, so here's what this book isn't, um, and then I'll say a little bit more about what it is. So um, I am I'm a historian. I'm not particularly a historian of Buddhism, which is kind of odd that I've written in this book about this monk, and I'll explain how that came to be the case. That may help explain some of the things that I find interesting about his career, and also maybe help explain some of the things that um, I've not paid as much attention to as you might expect uh, in his career. Um, the other thing, and maybe we can do this in discussion, um, I'm, I'm not particularly formal by nature, and um, so I was told to talk for 25 or 30 minutes and then have Q&A. Um, I may err on the side of Q&A, so I will uh, like to have some discussion. But one thing I resist about this book is calling it a biography. And we can have some discussion about why that may or may not be the case, and whether you think you can push me towards saying it is a biography and just owning that and making it my own, or push away and understand more boldly why it's not a biography. <laughs> Pay no attention to the woman behind the curtain. Okay, so now, as for uh, Tan Chu himself, let me give a little bit of introduction. So there he is. Um, Tan Xu. Um, so there's his dates, 1875 to 1963. Um, you know, he's got uh, additional names. Wang Futin would have been the name that he was known for mostly in the first half of his life, and then the second half of his life is when he's a Buddhist monk. Now, if you've if you've read the book or if you've talked to, um, or if I've talked to you, you may you may know that Wang um, that Tan Xu actually doesn't become a monk until um, the middle of his life. Um, he becomes becomes a monk when he's in his early 40s. Um, and that's really the center of one of the, of the kind of moral crises that he, that he invites uh, and takes part in. Um, what I think this book is about is really not about Buddhism per se. Um, it's not even about Tan Xu's life specifically. What I think this book is about is about moving between and among worlds. Um, and that includes the author and the subject, that includes um, the religious and the secular, that includes the modern and the traditional, that includes China and not China, um, which is often China in the West, but not necessarily just China in the West. And the reason that I got into that comes from this map then of, of China that we can show right here. So I first encountered uh, Tan Xu when I was doing research for my dissertation, um, which then became a first book, which then, which is about Harbin, right? So it's a pretty China-savvy crowd, I think, right? So we're up in the Northeast. So when I was up in, in Harbin, which every place and everywhere except China is called Manchuria, right? So being in, in Harbin, if you've been there, or if you know anything about it, you'll know A, it's cold, and B, it's not a very typically Chinese city, right? So it's a, a lot of, um, Russian architecture, a lot of European architecture, a lot of Japanese influence, not a typical Chinese city. Um, I was there studying, studying language. Um, I was at the CET program in, in Harbin in the early 90s. Um, and one of the things that we would do is we'd go to different you know, cultural sites. And one of the cultural sites was the one Buddhist temple in Harbin, which is very odd. And it's very odd in a way that seemed to me important. Um, it, it stands out like a sore thumb. 
Um, and as I was there, I came across the memoirs of this monk, who I then later learned and talked to some of the monks who were there, um, had founded the temple. And they had a copy of his, um, of his memoir, which I, that's where I first got it. And I looked at it, and I noted that he founded temples in these other places, so included Changchun and Shenyang, both of which have large, especially Russian communities, but it's also Japanese communities. Um, Qingdao, which is you know really which was a, a you know, full-blown colony right for for a period of time, um, Xi'an, which doesn't quite fit the model in terms of his colonial endeavors, and winds up in, in Hong Kong. So the wheels that started turning on this were okay. I've been told as a historian and as a student that Buddhism is not particularly political, right? That there's not there's not a political agenda being advanced by these Buddhist monks, but this clearly seems something seems fishy that he's choosing these particular places to build temples. So I became really curious about that. Um, so that's the story I decided to then pick up later, a few years later, and at the end of the presentation, I'll, I'll give you some of the details about why that becomes interesting. But this first, the moving between worlds is this world of the traditionally Chinese and the colonial or the semi-colonial or the, or the foreign. If this is one, like, would this work? So I'm grabbing this thread and, and tugging on it a bit. As I start, sir, please. Is, is that the historical sequence, temporal sequence, in which he founded them? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. Thank you. Yeah, so he, Yingko is where he's born and grows up. He then goes first to Changchun and Shenyang, he, where he founds temples, doesn't spend a lot of time there. Harbin he is in for a while. He flees Harbin when the Japanese invade, goes, goes to Xi'an. He's in Xi'an for a little while. Qingdao is where he spends the bulk of his career actually during the Japanese occupation, which we can talk about. And then he goes to Hong Kong, lives there the, when the communists take over, and lives the last 14 years of his life in Hong Kong. Thank you. Yep, and I should have made that, made that clear. Um, okay, the next world that he's moving between, as I started reading the biography in the first couple of days, is the world, moving between the world of the living and the world of the dead. Because very early in the book, um, Tan Xu dies which usually happens at the end of a memoir, but in this case it happens at the beginning. Um, and he becomes quite clear. He says, you know, I know what you're thinking. He says, I know you're thinking that I, you know, I hallucinated, that I died and I had this vision, I had this dream, and I went to dealt with, you know, dealt with the king of hell and I had to negotiate going back to, going back to life. Um, you have every reason to think that's what happened. That's not what happened. What happened is I actually died and I met with these people. So here's what I'll give you up to speed. So he dies when he's, uh, I think he's 18 years old, 19 years old. Um, up until that point, he'd been living in the area. Do I have the map here? Yeah. So he'd been living right around here. Can't tell how, well, how strong the light is. He'd been living near what's now Tianjin, a village called Beitang, which is now really an outer suburb of, of Tianjin. Um, but he'd been growing up in that, in that region. His father was a merchant sailor who was sailing around the Bohai Gulf. Um, he tried to get in a variety of different family businesses, so that included um, selling tobacco. Um, they'd grow tobacco up in up in uh, Shenyang. Go there in the summertime, where they grow. Family, if you've been in Connecticut, uh, the Connecticut River Valley, they grow that big thick tobacco for wrapping cigars, and they also do that in um, in Dongbei. Um, but he um, he was the only surviving child of his parents. Now he had had six or seven siblings. And the fact that he doesn't know if it was six or seven is instructive, right? So none of these, none of these children had survived to even to adolescence, right? So they had all died. Her, her, uh, his parents expected that they were going to die, die childless. Then um, later in life, they're surprised by Tan Xu. He's born. 
and he, he grows up to be at the age of 18 when he dies. This becomes important then for when he goes down to the underworld, and he has a very elaborate description of all this going on. Um, and he says, look, this would be just, this is too cruel, right? So if, if, I'm, if I die, then that means my, <coughs> particularly my mother, because he doesn't see his father very often. His father is traveling around as a, as a merchant. My mother is going to be left with no one to take care of her, with no one to um, support either her physically or honor her memory. Can we do something? And King of Hell gives him, makes him a deal. He says, you can go back if you um, will recite, he, he Tanju changes his stories a bit, but if you recite these certain Buddhist sutras over time. Now the reason the story changes a bit, and this is one of another, the other worlds that Tanju is moving back and forth between, is that he becomes very much a spiritual seeker. Um, so he tries Catholicism on for size, he tries Taoism on for size, he tries Buddhism on for size, he goes to all these different ones, in fact he talked about how his friends would make fun of him um, because he had all these different I mean, to hear him tell the story, he would have figurines of, of Catholic saints um, right next to Buddhist sutra text and right next to um, you know, images of Taoist immortals. Of course, from a Chinese perspective, that's all completely, makes complete sense um, that you would have these different traditions intertwining. But for, for Tan Shu, what he ultimately latches on to is that Buddhism is the way that he's going to move forward. We'll get back to a little bit of what that means in a moment. So there's the map. Any, ge any geographical questions? Any clarifying at the moment? In doing presentation on this, I often find I need a, I need a map, and so I stick them in occasionally and go back to it. Okay. <clears throat> As he goes on through his life and determines that... Um, oh, sorry. Back up. Growing up in northeast China, he is confronted regularly by the what you read in the, you know, in the histories of, of the era. So Boxer Uprising, and it's, um, well, sorry, we'll go in order. Sino-Japanese War is happening right on his front yard, right? So he's seeing Japanese and Chinese armies fighting against each other and the Chinese getting the short end of that stick. He's seeing the Boxer Uprising happening right in front of him, and that's being suppressed and put down by, by foreign armies, and he has a really heartrending series about uh, seeing the, the casualties of that conflict. Then he sees the um, Russo-Japanese War, which is not involving China, per se, but is fought entirely in China. Um, so he sees all these things going on. So this is uh, a conversation I was having with, um, with, with Jeff Wasserstrick, who many of you know is an eminent historian of 20th century China, talking about how one of the reasons why Tan Shu and people like Tan Shu, I think, don't get noticed is because they don't really fit into the categories that we have established. So one of the categories that we have are traditionalists. So there are people who would say that what China needs is to build back on its traditions and reject foreign influences. Another model would be the modernizer, right? The modernizer that China needs to reject its traditional past and move forward into something um, more modern, often more Western. Tan Xu comes to the conclusion, looking at all this, that right, China can't go on as it is. It's just getting beaten left, right, and center by the Russians, by the Germans, by the British, by the French, by the Japanese. So it needs to clearly do something different. But what he sees, both for the Japanese and for the Europeans, Americans he doesn't deal with as much directly, um, is what he feels is that their advantage is not in superior armaments or superior technology, that their advantage is in a, a spiritual foundation that he thinks enables them to prosper and succeed. 
Christianity in the case of the Europeans, Buddhism in the case of the Japanese. He doesn't think that China needs to become Christian. He thinks that China needs to look back into its own past and its own traditions and find what its spiritual foundation, which he says is Buddhism. Now, apologies to my teachers and graduates who <coughs> emphasized over and over again that Buddhism is not Chinese. For Tan Shu, it was, right? So Tan Shu felt that the reason why, the, the way that China was going to go forward was by becoming um, a Buddhist nation and a modern Buddhist nation. So he wanted both those things together. So he was neither quite a traditionalist nor a modernizer. At this point, and Margo and I just talked about this in the, uh, a few minutes ago, um, at this point, he has a decision to make. So how is he going to become, how is he going to help advance China's cause to become a modern, successful Buddhist nation? And he decides that the way to do that is become a Buddhist monk. Tries to do this a couple of times and he's turned away. And finally, in 1910, so in 1910, he is 35 years old. He leaves, he actually lies to his wife and says, I'm going out to attend for Qingming Festival. I'm going to attend, you know, 10 gravestones. And splits, goes to Beijing. They're living in Ningpo at the, at the time. Um, and goes to become a monk. And he is in a, a scene that is somewhere between, well, it's, it's a bizarre scene. He goes, back to, he goes back to her a year later or so um, and can't understand why she's, she's really unhappy with him. <laughs> Wife and seven kids. But she's... Um, and I felt that this was... When I was doing the research for the book, um, I was presenting at that chapter, and one of the people listening says, well, I just think you've done a good job, because oftentimes biographers you know, become so enamored of their subject that they present them as being you know, perfect figures. And this guy seems like an ass. <laughs> with apologies. Um, so I felt like I had done good, I think. Um, so anyhow, um, he decides to then become a Buddhist monk, and he goes then to Ningbo which is where he, he goes to Beijing, he's trained for a while, and then they say, well, you need to go to Ningbo, because there's no good Buddhism in the north, all the Buddhism is in the south. When he goes to the south, he's a really valuable commodity, and this is something I think is important to, to emphasize, is anyone who's, you know, if you've traveled extensively in China, the idea that there are Chinese dialects is, you know, is a misnomer. There's different languages that people speak in different parts of the country. So when you go to the south, he doesn't understand what people are saying, doesn't like the food, he doesn't like the weather, he doesn't like anything about it, but he's really, really valuable because he can go to the north and help spread Buddhism. So they think he's really important. And that catapults him then into the career that he goes on um, to have. This is the temple that's taken a couple of years ago. It's still, it was still there. I think it's gone now. I think it's been turned into a even better temple. Um, <laughs> even better temple. So they, had the, they had the plans that they were working I was fortunate because I was there. I could actually go to the room that he had stayed in, and it had the—I don't know if it was the original floor or not, but it was certainly an old floor. Now it's the nest in marble in China. So then he goes back up north. Um, he goes back north to Yinko. Yinko is where he lived. Yinko is probably not a place you've heard of. Um, it was also known as Nyojuang, um, and it was a treaty port. Um, and so there was uh, an American consul in in Nyojuang. And it had a, a bund down on the, on the waterfront, which had a number of foreign buildings. There weren't any, there was no Buddhist temple there. So his first idea was, I want to build a Buddhist temple there, not because it needs to be um, sinified, not because we need to have a Chinese presence there, because this is where he had grown up. He wanted to learn more about Buddhism, and there wasn't a Buddhist temple there. So he establishes it. 
But we're now talking, we're now in 1917, 18, 20, <coughs> 1920, I think it's kind of a little bit. Um, we're now to the point that um, people start. Uh, officials in other cities start to notice what he's doing. And that's, if you remember then the list that you were just asking about of temples, um, he gets invited to Shenyang, to Changchun, and then ultimately to Harbin. So then this would be the picture of, of Harbin that you may be familiar with. The, the, the code, the quick and dirty code here is it's in black and white. It was destroyed in the Cultural Revolution. If it's in color, it's still there. So um, St. Nicholas Church, which is the uh, center of one part of town, um, which was destroyed in 1966, um, as with the, the church uh, in the lower left. This church is still there. It's a Catholic church in this, which you can't see very well. That was the American consulate. Um, but this was, I mean, this was Harbin. and this was this kind of, they were very proud to say that European fashions got to Harbin first because they would go across the, the Trans-Siberian Railroad, get the Harbin, and then go down into, into the rest of China. Um, let's see what I, the image that I put here. Just the one, so I'll do this shtick here. What he then did here, did I not include a photo for that temple? Didn't, shame on me. Um, what he does when he gets to Harbin is he's commissioned to build a temple, it's called the Jila, so the Paradise Temple. And if you look at Harbin on a, an overhead map, you'll see that the, the square, which is circular, um, where this church is, runs down Dajajia, right, the big straight street, runs down past these, some of these churches, not all of them, and then to the Russian cemetery. So you've got this straight line, and it's a cruciform. So you've got one crossing, and then you've got this long boulevard. What the city officials do is they invite Tanshu into the city to build a Buddhist temple, and then they commission a Confucian temple, which are built right opposite one another, right by the entrance to the Russian cemetery. So. My argument, this was in the, the dissertation, my argument was this was done explicitly and on purpose so that they could you know, say to the Russians, you know, you're not in St. Petersburg anymore. Right? That this is, this is Chinese territory, this is a Chinese place. And, and Tan Shu was very explicit about that. Um, I'm probably going on too long, so I'm not going to read what he wrote about it. But he said, I'm going to build this temple, and this temple is going to be a marker to show how this is a Chinese, is a Chinese city. Um, he does the same thing in, in Qingdao, right? So he's gone on to Qingdao, he's brought there by city officials, the 